Well, good evening, and glad you could join us for our Bible study on the life of Christ. We are at a point now where I had to kind of do a mini-series. My goal originally was to preach through the Sermon on the Mount in one night, and I got to tell you, that was very ambitious of me. A little too ambitious, not practical. I realized after I, I began studying the Sermon on the Mount deeper for this particular Bible study that I would not be doing either you or the text justice by doing everything in, in three chapters of Matthew. Now, Luke only has a portion of the Sermon on the Mount mentioned, much more condensed, but I wanted to give you the full detail of this message because I just I love the heart of Christ as it is laid out for us during this chapter, chapter 5, 6, and 7. We went over chapter 5 last week, going to complete chapter 6 this week. I may even get into chapter 7. We'll see how that goes, but I'm not going to promise you anything because I had already done that once and failed, so I'm not going to do it again. But when you think about the heart of Christ, you can see his miracles. You can see the healings. You can see the way that he handled the disciples the way that he spoke to those who disagree with him. But I don't know that you can get a, a full picture of the heart of Christ without seeing what he taught, the truth that came out of his mouth. Obviously, his compassion is illustrated for us through the, the acts that he accomplished. But his true mind is literally spoken to us verbally through his message and so I did not feel right skimming over that portion. Now, I am not going to give as much time on every, you might say, message of Christ. There are other times where Christ teaches. And I will not be turning them all into mini-series. But we are doing it this time. So a three-part mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men... To be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 3, but when thou doest alms, let thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, or let not, excuse me, thy left hand know. Verse 4, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth thee in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now, the word alms here, of course, is referring to the offerings, not necessarily, I put tithing up on the screen, because in today's 21st century church, our offering is called a tithe. In the Old Testament, the Jews actually had tithes and offerings. So the tithes of the Old Testament were, you may not know this, but were essentially taxes. In the Old Testament, the books of the law, God gave the Jews specific amounts of money they were required to give the temple as a tax. It was to cover the costs of, you might say, the theocracy, which was a, a uh, government where God oversaw and they had no king, so before King Saul, before King David, God said, uh, I'm basically going to rule through the priests and rule through the temple. And so any taxes you're paying is essentially paying to, to keep the Levites, who were the, the priestly tribe, and the temple, the tabernacle, all these things, to keep those going, because that's what taxes does. It funds the, the people and the system. So for the Old Testament, the people and the systems were the priests and the tabernacle. And so they were required to pay these taxes, which were called a tithe, 
to keep that system going. And then, of course, you had King Saul, King David came on board, and they, they started adding taxes on top of the tithe because now you had a government that needed to be funded. But the tithe was never eliminated for the Jews. That always remained because even though God allowed kings to take over, in the Old Testament, he never eliminated the tabernacle system, which became the temple system, and he never eliminated the priests. So God required tithes even through the monarchy. And so when you get into the first century church, the tithes were eliminated because God tore the temple of the veil, uh, the veil of the temple, and there was no need for the priestly tribe, there was no need for the temple, and there was no need for the temple taxes or tithes. But up until that point, uh, God also encouraged something above and beyond the tithes called offering. And the offering would be what you would want to give towards God's temple towards the the priestly tribe above and beyond the taxes. And often, by the way, the offerings, like in many churches today, at least should be, the offerings would be used to help the poor. The offerings would be used to to, uh, assist widows. And if if people needed help, they would go to the priest, they would go to the, the local temple, and they would receive assistance. And so by giving alms to the temple, offering above and beyond the tithe, you're essentially giving what you hope would be invested in people in the community, furthering God's kingdom, furthering God's glory. The problem we have here in chapter 6 of Matthew is people giving not to further God's kingdom, but to increase their own glory. People are not giving because they care about the needy, and they hope that if I give this, people will find assistance. They are giving because they want people to think they are just a great person. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years, has it? find a lot of people giving for the same reasons. A lot of people are not giving because they truly care about where the money is going or who it's going to. They care about what people think about them as they give. And God is basically saying, he states in uh, verse number four, uh, give your alms in secret, your offerings above and beyond the tithe. Give that in secret so your father can reward thee openly. Because if you don't and if you give it hypocritically, if you give it so that people will see you, verse 2, then you already have your reward. What is that? It is temporary glory among men. So do not think that if you are giving for any other reason than God's glory and to assist your neighbor, do not think that if you're giving for another reason, God is going to reward you for that. If you are giving for your own glory, if you are giving to impress people, then God basically says, well, then good luck with that because I'm not attaching anything into that. By the way, I think that the greatest way to give is with no expectation of reward at all from God or people. Now, God does say he will reward. He doesn't say what that might look like. I am very concerned for those teachers, those preachers, those churches who would preach a, a prosperity gospel. This idea that uh, the more you give, the more you get. Uh, it is a common thing on evangelists who find themselves on TV These evangelists are not attached necessarily to a church. Some are, some are not. So the way they get funded is by people watching TV, writing a note, sticking in a letter with some money, sending it in, saying, thank you so much for what you've done. And, I mean, these evangelists, they are very smooth, some of them. They will... They will talk about stories of how people's lives have been changed to the t- TV station and that, that you can do the same. But they will almost always attach to it some idea of, and if you give, God will do the same for you. Or God will do something amazing for you. So they make it sound like you're giving because you care about the people 
who are hurting, but then they tie into it, give, because you need something too, and God will give it to you if you give. If you pay attention, you'll find that usually both are involved. They're pulling at the heartstrings and your greed, tying them together and saying, now give them to me. And so that's not going to work. God's not going to attach anything to that giving because God has stated if you're giving for any other reason, then you truly want to see God's kingdom moving forward. It's hypocritical. And God's not going to reward hypocrisy. Now, we're not going to get deep into tithing tonight. This text doesn't cover it deeply, but because it mentions it, I do want to give some thoughts on tithing. There are pastors who claim that 10% is the bare minimum you should give. It is a Old Testament command and therefore uh, never eliminated in the New Testament and should be followed by all New Testament believers. And if you're not giving anything, uh, uh, if you're giving anything below 10%, then you are not in God's will. Well, I've already stated that that 10% tax was a temple tax for the nation of Israel towards the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle ceased, so did that 10% temple tax. So that's, actually, it's wrong. There is no New Testament continuation of a 10% temple tax, because we're not Jews, and we're not tithing to the temple. The second problem with that whole 10% thing is the Jews actually, like today, taxes are a whole lot more than 10% of your paycheck, are they not? You're paying taxes when you buy gas. You're paying taxes when you buy clothes. You're paying taxes to the government out of your paycheck every week, state and federal both. So uh, you're paying way more than 10%. The same with the Jews. When you look at all of the various offerings and tithes that God required of the Jews, it was far and above 10%. There, there was the, the, the basic, you might say, starting point of 10%. But then he says, and when this happens, give more. When this happens, give more. And, and give the first fruits of your, of your sheep and give the first fruits of your field. That's all above the 10% that they were giving. And then there was a temple tax you paid when you had a firstborn son. You were to give money to the temple for that. So uh, the other problem with this whole 10% thing is the Jews were giving a whole lot more than 10%. Another thing to remind ourselves is the New Testament does talk about tithing. And it never mentions 10%. And now some pastors say, yes, yeah. But when you look at the Old Testament, 10% was the tithe. And I've already stated now multiple times, that's not true. First of all, 10% was the minimum. There was more given, and there was a temple tax, not a general giving to God. But when the New Testament does mention tithes and offerings, which would not be attached to a tax, a requirement, but a desire on your own heart to give, The New Testament is very clear when it says God desires a cheerful giver. And so I think God's pretty clear. It basically comes down to if you are giving so much that it hurts you emotionally and spiritually and it's causing bitterness in your heart, don't give it. What I stated some months ago when I preached on this, which I do not preach often on tithing, I stated um, when you're giving so much you're bitter, then give less. If you're still bitter, then give less. When, when your emotional uh, peace is matched to your giving, now you're at the right spot. By the way, I do believe that as God blesses more and as you mature more, that probably that line will rise. I know I'm giving more now than I was at 20 for multiple reasons, one of which I have more now than I did at 20. That's one reason. But there are other reasons. As you mature, in the faith, and as you see God doing amazing things, you want to be more a part of that. But the thing is, that was a choice I made in my life. No one forced me to give more. It was a decision my wife and I, we make together on how much we want to give. And it's dangerous when the church is monitoring your giving and your heart condition, because then I think you're back at this scenario of 
Matthew 6, 1 through 4, where you're not giving for the right reason, and there's no reward gained from it. Well, the pastor might say, but the church is being rewarded. You know, I feel like when a pastor has to manipulate people to receive, then they're doing damage to God's kingdom. They're not bringing health to God's kingdom. God does not need your money. I certainly do not need your money. And so if you want to give towards this or any ministry, then do so because you want to be a part of what God is doing. And if you don't believe that, then you probably just shouldn't give. And if you, if you do believe it, but it makes you mad, then you definitely shouldn't give <laughs> because you don't need to give to be saved. You don't need to give to stay saved. Your giving should be attached to your desire to bring glory to God, to further his kingdom, and to be part of what he's doing. So that's tithing. Let's move on now to the next truth that God mentions here in verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites. You're going to find that word mentioned quite often throughout this Sermon on the Mount, specifically in chapter 6. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Uh, God is, is calling out the, the status quo, what has been accepted in this culture, and God is basically saying, just because you've accepted this doesn't make it right. How many churches have accepted a certain way of doing things? In fact, not only accepted it, but the pastors literally preach it. Well, this is how we've always done it, bless God, and this is how we're going to continue doing it. And I am not going to be the one to, to move the wall, to, to move the stone that should not be moved. In fact, I heard a message recently preached online where the man was preaching out of the book of, um, I believe it was, what book was it? I think it was he, one of the, the kings, I believe. He was preaching on the life of Elijah. So he was preaching on one of the kings. And uh, he, he was doing pretty good at first. I thought, this is a good message. I was, I don't, I don't, I've never heard this guy preach before, but he intrigued me. It was on Facebook and happened to be a live service, so I stopped and listened to it. This is only a couple of months ago. And the man was preaching on Elijah, and he was preaching on how God used Elijah and how uh, Elijah had helped raise up Elisha and was bringing Elisha into that position. And I thought, that's interesting. And then things started to change, and I started getting a little concerned. By the time he was done with his message, he had preached that um, when Elisha got Elijah's cloak. Remember that? When Elijah went up on the fiery chariot and his cloak was left behind. And uh, remember Elijah told Elisha, if you see me going up, then God will give you the double portion. You'll know that he's answered your request. That's what Elisha wanted. And Elijah's cloak floated down and Elisha picked it up and Elisha walked back to the river. Do you remember what Elisha did with that cloak when he got to the river? He hit the water and it parted and Elisha walked across the dry river to the other side. Do you remember why Elisha did that? Because as Elisha and Elijah walked across the river the first time, what did Elijah do? He hit the water with his cloak and walked across. And then Elijah was taken up to heaven, uh, only, one of, only one of two men that we know of in the Bible that was taken up to heaven without dying. Elisha, do you know the second one? Enoch, that's right. The only two that we know of. Some people mentioned Moses. That's not true. Moses died. We're told in the Bible God buried Moses' body himself. How about that for a, a funeral? God himself burying your body. That's pretty impressive. Why would he do that? I think that God was concerned if people buried Moses' body, they would have somehow elevated his bones and body to some form of worship. So God says, I'll take care of this. I'll bury it. So God took care of Moses' body. Only two men brought to heaven without dying, Elijah being one of them. So after Elijah goes to heaven, 
Elisha walks back to where they came from. Now he's on his own. He's all, he, he's, his, his friend is gone. Hits the river. And so this preacher said, you know what? I love this because when he hit the river, what did he do? He did the same thing Elijah did. Why? Because if it was good enough for Elijah, it was good enough for Elisha. And if Elijah's going to walk by that river uh, and hit the water, then Elisha's going to do it because there's no need to change what the prophet did before you. And I thought, that's not even close to what's going on. Elisha didn't do it because he, he was afraid of change. I think Elisha was doing it to say, okay, Elijah told me I'd have the double portion of the Spirit's power. Let's see if that's the case. Bam. Oh, it is the case. All right, praise the Lord. Elisha, Elijah didn't lie to me. I mean, that's to me exactly what I see. Elisha, it was his first opportunity to, you might say, prove God, to prove the statement of Elijah. It had nothing to do with, I don't want to change what someone did before me. And so a lot of ministries think like this pastor. Almost any text you look at, it is an opportunity to preach on don't change, don't change, don't change. And yet that's exactly what's going on here in the first century. The, the religion of that day had been doing the same things for some time, for generations, and they did not change. They did not want to change. And they would call anyone out who might change, and they would call them of the devil, and they would call them ungodly, uh, maybe even ostracize them altogether and say, you're not even a Jew at all. And here Christ is preaching his first big message, and he's saying all these things you guys have been doing, hypocrites, hypocrisy. I'm going to call it out because all of you are too afraid to do that. Can you imagine the relief? I mean, I'm sure there's thousands of people here, right? There's lots of people listening. Can you imagine the relief of some? Like, oh, I, I've been wanting to say that out loud for like five years now. No, no one's been brave enough to say what he's saying out loud. Can you imagine the relief of some who've been trying so hard to toe the line and do everything that the religion of that day had been asking of them and to hear that, not only do I not have to, but it's been hypocrisy when I have, like, the freedom to actually worship God and not just toe the line again. But also, can you imagine the anger of some? The anger of some who literally, that's what they've been living. You know, I've realized recently the reason a lot of people are afraid of change. Here's what I think, and I'm claiming an assumption here. I'm not going to tell you that I know this for sure. I believe a lot of people are afraid of change because then they have to admit that what they've been doing has been wrong. When it comes to worship services, when it comes to what they've been telling others, it's hard to admit that what I've been teaching someone else for 20 years is wrong. So the fact that change itself is so hard makes it worse when that's, the change is literally the opposite of what you've been doing and teaching for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And the longer you've been doing and teaching it, the harder it is to accept that you've been wrong. <laughs> and so there are some who've been doing it so long that even if they begin to see that they're wrong, they will push it away, they will ignore it, they will blind their eyes to it because they cannot admit, I've been wrong for 30 years. And so they just keep preaching and doing the same things blindly, now out of pride, if it ever was not out of pride. And so Christ here is telling them to their face, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're hypocrites for making it seem godly as you tithe. You're hypocrites, verse 5, in the way you pray and encouraging others to pray in a similar manner. 
the Pharisees would pray publicly, loudly, so that people, I think in their head, here's how, the human, knowing the human condition, I would imagine they justified it as we're, we're setting an example. I would imagine they, they're thinking we want them to know who they can go to if they want to talk to someone who's godly. I would imagine that they're, they're thinking that um, it's good for the culture to remember there are godly men. I, I'm sure they justified it in many ways. But God knew the heart. And the heart was not, we want to bring them to God. The heart was not, we want the culture to remember they're still good men. The heart was, always had been, look at me. I'm better than everyone else. That was the heart. Now, I doubt these men were ever bold enough to claim that. I, again, I think they probably preached something different and justified it in their heads. But Christ doesn't see the heart. I mean, the head only does it. He sees the heart. And so he's calling them out, not for what they justified, not for what they said. He's calling them out for why the heart condition. And he says, don't be a hypocrite, for they love, that's the heart condition, to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. That was the real reason, regardless of what they claimed otherwise. For verily I say unto you, they have their reward. That does not mean it's wrong to pray publicly in a worship service. That does not mean it's wrong to pray in a family scenario uh, with friends and family at Thanksgiving or before a meal. He is not calling out the fact that people pray when others are nearby. He's calling out why. They are praying because they love to be seen and heard, not because they love to worship. Now, verse 6, but when thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is secret, and thy father, which seeth thee in secret, shall reward thee openly. I do believe there's some value to public worship. God talks about that. And in the Old Testament, we see public prayer attached to public worship, and God not only allows it, but commands it. In the Old Testament, public prayer attached to public worship. So again, that is not the problem here. But this is not a public worship service. These are guys who are on their own going to the, uh, the, the most populated area and then praying there in the middle of the road. <laughs> not because they just heard something that bothered them, but because they don't want to waste their time by praying where no one can see them. And so that's the issue. So do not confuse this public prayer, again, with the worship service in the right heart condition or with family. That God is saying, if you want me to hear you privately, then let's have a private conversation. Now, verse 7, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard, for they're much speaking. Now, that's interesting because there's a parable where Christ, more than one parable, where Christ refers to how we ought to pray. One in particular where Christ talks about a widow. And he says a widow one time uh, had an issue where she was wronged. And so she went to the local magistrate, the judge, the one who could fix the problem. And she said, will you please fix this issue? The judge, you know, he's a politician to a degree. Uh, he only cares about the important people, not this little unknown widow. So he refuses. No, I'm not, I don't have time for you, woman. Leave me alone. So the widow goes back to him and tries again. And the judge again says, did you not hear the first time? You, you are of no value to me. Uh, your vote doesn't count, basically, okay? So leave me alone. Christ says this widow kept pestering the man. Until finally, what do you imagine the man did? Dealt 
with the problem. Jesus Christ literally states, not because he cared about the woman, but because he wanted to be left alone. (laughs) And then Christ goes on to say, how much better will your father answer your prayers? And then he actually encourages us to pray like the widow woman. Well, doesn't that seem to contradict this statement here? Where he says, don't repeat your prayer like the heathen do. Because you think God will hear you more if you repeat it. And then the parable of the widow, keep praying till you get the answer. Well, what's the difference between the two? Because we know Christ will not contradict himself. So they must have different meanings. I think the parable of the widow is very clear. I think what's unclear is this passage. So let me explain it to you. I don't believe he is stating we should only pray something one time and walk away. The heathen, as many times, if you read historical documents, and if you, I mean, even Hollywood knows, they get it when they, when they have, you know, uh, movies that deal with religion and people are chanting, and they're just like saying the same words over and over and over again. A chant is the best, I think, way to say it. It's not an actual prayer. They're, they're basically um, stating the same things uh, in repetition in the same prayer. I think that um, I'm going to be cautious with this statement, but I do want to make it. I'm not telling you that it would be attached exactly to this passage, but I would caution you. There are those who I believe get close to this kind of prayer unknowingly. I've heard some that when they pray, the name of God becomes a punctuation. That every time there's a comma or a period, instead of taking a pause, they say God or Jesus. Uh, Dear Jesus, thank you, Jesus. I'm glad we're here, Jesus. Uh, Please help my mom, Jesus, and thank you for this food, Jesus. And and, uh, bring me back tomorrow, Jesus, and you're a good God, Jesus, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I think that that could be something they were trained to do. They're not thinking about it, but I believe that's close to what we're talking about here. Christ is saying that when you pray, let's have a conversation. I don't need the same words repeated so many times, uh, hoping that if you mention my name, Jesus, 20 times in a prayer, somehow I'll hear it more. Or I'll respond more, oh, you only said my name three times, so then it's no to you. 30 times, oh, that's good. I'm going to say yes to you. I think that's the problem here, is that Jesus is basically stating, you, you think that what you're saying is going to get my attention. And if you say the right thing enough times, it will get my attention. But again, verse 5, what does Christ care about? The heart condition. That, that means way more to God than how many times you mentioned his name in a prayer. So we move on to verse 8. Be not therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. I mean, that's a great statement. That's something we should have already assumed if you didn't know otherwise. God knows all. Therefore, why bother praying then? What's the point of praying if God already knows what we're asking before we pray? Because God likes to hear your voice. Well, I got you, Pastor Russ. I don't talk out loud. I pray in my heart. God loves to see your heart. Sometimes I know what my children want. I'm not God, but nor am I stupid. When we are in the mall, I know my kids want pretzels. And sometimes I give it to them without asking. Something about the mall and pretzels. I guess maybe I ingrain that in them because we always get them pretzels almost every time. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes I wait until they ask. Not because I'm trying to manipulate them, but as a dad, there's something about knowing my daughters know they can come to me. There's something sweet 
about your children when they ask with a happy heart, not sassy, not disrespectful, but ask with a happy heart, hey, mom, dad, can, can we go to the park? Can, can we have some ice cream after dinner? And as a parent, you can kind of gauge what will their attitude be if I say no, and you can kind of assume what that might be. And as long as you know they're asking in the right attitude, and they're asking because they love you, and they're just asking for something, it can kind of warm your heart as a parent. How much more God when he actually sees the heart attached to the request? God doesn't need us to pray because he's got to find out what we want. God wants us to pray because God wants to hear from us. God wants a connection with you. But it's not all about God. Your prayer to God probably is less helpful to God than it is to you. Sometimes it's not, well, I pray because God loves hearing me, although he does. You know what? It's I pray because I need God, and I need to hear me go to God. And God knows that. God knows your heart condition. God knows where you're at spiritually. And God knows that you need to pray for you. As much as he loves hearing it, you need it. And so God is instructing us on how to do it so that we can benefit the most from it because it is what we need. After this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed or holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so we find what is called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not the prayer we should pray every time we go to God. The Lord's Prayer is not what we should pray every time we go to sleep. In fact, I grew up, and uh, my dad, before he was even saved, we, I was saved. Uh, my dad got saved later in life, and he would still try to do right by his family. He was a good man, not a godly man a good man, and so would pray with his children before he was even saved, but he didn't know what to pray. So I remember as a kid, we prayed the same exact prayer every single night. And I remember as a child thinking, that's odd, because at Christian school I went to, we didn't. Church, we didn't. But at my house with my dad, we did. My dad eventually got saved, and even in his young Christian uh, maturity, he was still doing the same thing, didn't know any better, prayed the same prayer. I realized eventually my dad just didn't know what to pray. But then as my dad began to grow in his Christian faith, the prayer became a conversation. And instead of just repeating the same thing, like the vain repetition, I think, also attached to what was said earlier, he's now having a conversation with God. And there's a danger when we don't move from the immature vain repetition to the conversation. There's a danger there. But let's not think that as long as we repeat the Lord's Prayer, somehow we're safe. No, it's still the same problem. The Lord's Prayer is not a command of what to pray. It's an example of how to pray. So when Christ prays, I want to mention a few things. We're going to move on quickly. Number one, do you notice the length? Some people think the longer you pray, the godlier you are. I'm not sure where they got that because it's certainly not in Scripture. An example of a godly prayer could literally be stated in less than 30 seconds. I'm not saying your prayers all need to be 30 seconds. I'm saying they don't need to be 30 minutes. I think that when you have a conversation with God, talk to him as long as you want. But don't feel guilty if you just need to make a quick prayer to God. There's nothing wrong with that. 
The second observation I want to make is notice what he prays about. Notice how he begins, first of all. He begins by praising God in verse 9. He goes on to, uh, in the prayer, reminding himself Jesus Christ is God, but using the example to, for us, helping us remind ourselves of uh, the, God's plan for the future. So it begins by, God, you are awesome. God, here's your plan for the future. Now, right away, those two things, what does that do for you? It realigns your focus on who God is, who you are, and where you're going. I mean, that's a great way to start a prayer. God, you're amazing, and I sure am glad this world is not my home. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Then, verse 11, we are reminded that God loves us and cares for us. Give us our bread. God loves us and cares for us. God is the not just the protector, but the provider. Verse 12, forgive us our debts. In his example of the Lord's Prayer, Christ reminds us the need of repentance. Did you notice how he didn't start the prayer with repentance? I'm not saying that you need to, in your prayer, follow this exact order, but I think there's some significance here. And it's interesting to me that Christ started with praising God, then went into repentance. Hmm. I think the natural side of me would say repent first and everything else later, but not Christ. And then verse 13 after repentance, now God give me the strength, the power, the ability to resist future temptation, which implies we're going to sin again. In his own example of prayer, Christ recognizes the frailty of humanity. Christ recognizes the sinfulness of flesh, and Christ gives a prayer that not only recognizes that, but helps with that. And so Christians who think that, well, good Christians don't sin, haven't read the Lord's Prayer. And then... Verse 14, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, that's not part of the Lord's Prayer. It ends with Amen 13, but it goes into this very next idea that uh, we'll get to fasting in a second, but this idea of 14 and 15 that it's going to be really hard for you, I think, in my opinion, to forgive others when you are not connected with God. And I believe that's a great segue from a, a life of prayer to a life of forgiveness. Not only God's forgiveness for you, but your forgiveness to others. And that when you are connected with God and when you receive forgiveness from God, it's easier to forgive others. But also, if you do not forgive others, God says, don't expect me to forgive you. That, that is not attached to eternal forgiveness. God is not saying, if you don't forgive others, you'll go to hell. He's saying that, uh, I'm not going to be as merciful to you on this earth if you yourself don't sow mercy to others. And so God wants us to stay connected with him, to be in prayer because he loves hearing from us, yes, because we need, yes, and then it allows us, I think, to be forgiving to others when we are connected with God. All right, let's move on to verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 17 says, when you fast, uh, anoint your head, wash your face, basically clean yourself. That's what he's talking about. Don't, don't put sackcloth and ashes on, but look normal. Verse 18, that you do not appear, I'm paraphrasing, do not appear unto men uh, like you're fasting, but basically like the prayer thing, that your fasting is between you and God. Now, this idea of fasting is, I think, um, confusing to some people. In fact, we just passed 
the, the beginning of Lent. I think it started some time ago. It's a Catholic tradition, Lent, where people will fast. They'll choose something to fast from or eliminate from their lives. And then as you get to Easter, of course, you're hopefully thinking, I think the purpose is focusing on Christ for Easter. And then after Easter, you can go back to whatever you were doing again. Now, Lent itself... The practice of Lent is not an unbiblical one. It's just a practice of fasting. My issue with Lent is it's a church-directed fast, essentially the Catholic Church directing all of its members to fast from this time to this time, which we do see in the Old Testament for the Jews. They did do that. There were times of fasting where the whole nation was supposed to follow these patterns of fasting. So, again, I'm not even opposed to necessarily that. I just don't see that following into us into the New Testament church. I don't see the New Testament church having the obligation, the authority, the responsibility uh, to impose a, a national or international fast on all of its members. That's not in Scripture, not in the New Testament anyways. So I do have a concern about that, but not necessarily the idea that Christians would want to fast from something for a time. Because the purpose of fasting is accomplished in Lent, and that is, the idea is, eliminate something from your life and consider Christ. And that's why Lent is before Easter, and that's why it's happening. It is, is that's, the, that's the idea. That is a biblical idea. That is the purpose of fasting. I think you say an, a, another attachment to fasting, Christ stated that when there was someone demon-possessed, he said, well, this kind of person, uh, the demon is not eliminated unless it's prayer and fasting. So I think that another purpose for fasting would be if, you, if you're truly seeking God's heart on a matter or truly uh, asking something of God on a matter, fasting is a great way to see the heart of God or to, to know the heart of God or for uh, your desire to, to gain a response from the heart of God. You know, one of those things. So fasting is attached to prayer often, and that's a beautiful thing. But fasting is also attached to this idea of um, you're eliminating something from your life so you can focus on who God is to you, who Christ is to you. Both great reasons. The problem with this passage and these people is neither of those reasons are going on right here. These people are fasting. So that, again, other people will say, wow, you must be a really good person. You must be a really godly person. There are many ways that a religious person can gain the respect, honor, approval of other religious people. But that's not what religion is about. You say, well, Pastor Russ, we're not in religion. We're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Christianity is not a religion. Well, that's interesting because I read in the New Testament that the purest form of religion is to assist the fatherless and the widows. So it doesn't seem to me that Christ believes religion is somehow a cursed word. It doesn't seem to me that God uh, said to the church, never use the word religion and don't be religious. I don't see that in Scripture. What I do think is that there are a whole lot of religions out there. And, and a whole lot of them, first of all, have nothing to do with the Bible or Christ. And, and a lot who do have something to do with the Bible or Christ don't get it right. They, they twist Scripture. They, they claim that they follow Christ, but they, the Christ they're following doesn't match the Christ of the Bible. Well, then they would say, well, my Christ would never do that. And I would say, did the Christ of the Bible do that? Well, yes. Well, then I don't care who your Christ is because I'm following the one of the Bible, not the one you made up to feel good about your religion. And I think a lot of Christians are so afraid of being um, attached 
to other religions, that Christian state, well, we're not in a religion, we're in a relationship. Here's the problem. The world doesn't understand that. They say, wait a second, do you go to church? Yes. Do you sing while you're at church? Yes. Do you believe in a God? Yes. Well, then you're in a religion. You know, the world understands the word religion, and they attach it to us whether we like it or not. Us telling them that we're not in a religion just makes us sound like we don't know what we're talking about. It makes us sound stupid. It makes us sound like we're shallow or trying to be sneaky or deceptive. There's no reason for you to claim you're not in a religion. Christianity is a religion. As the American definition of the American word religion goes, we are in a religion, the Christian religion. It's okay. Don't be afraid of the word religion. Just clarify what that means. You know, in the Bible, the word religion isn't a series of do's and do nots. In the Bible, religion is a relationship with Christ and how that plays out in our lives, specifically in how we love people. That's the religion of the Bible. That's a great conversation to have. But these people are using religion to gain the respect and honor of other religious people, and Christ is, again, calling them out for the hypocrisy. Because religion isn't about a status, social status, religious status, relationship status. Religion is about a relationship with Christ and how you treat other people, not what they think about you. Going on to this famous passage in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I'm sorry, let's go back up to verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves uh, treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thy eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Single means purposeful. Uh, Headed down a path, a direction that is good. And if you have a path that your light is, is, you could say, eye on the prize, focused, doing the right thing. If your eyes are looking at the right thing, your whole body will benefit. Uh, Physically, emotionally, spiritually, you'll be full of light, full of joy, full of peace, uh, full of God's blessing upon you. But, verse 23, if your eye is evil, not single, not focused on God, but looking back and forth, left and right, tossed to and fro, and looking at evil things, thinking of evil things, thy whole body shall be full of darkness, the opposite of peace, the opposite of joy. You know, the world has so many books, so many teachers, instructors, so many people willing to tell you how to find joy and peace and happiness how to be full of light. Uh, They wouldn't use light in the same way God's word does, but essentially how to just be full of all these things. And yet they claim that the way to get those things is by following your dreams, by uh, living and let living, by eliminating any morality or guilt attached to morality that you were once told or that you once had. If you eliminate all those things, if you eliminate the boundaries that religion has set, if you eliminate the nuclear family and the guilt attached to what a nuclear family ought to look like, a traditional family, eliminate all that. If you eliminate the, the boundaries of, of gender and the boundaries of sexuality, if you just eliminate all these things, the world says you will find that happiness you've always sought. God's word here says the exact opposite. God's word says when you jump into those things, the evil of the world, 
You will be filled with the evil of the world and the darkness that comes with it, the depression, the discouragement, the unhappiness, the opposite of what the world claims to give you. If you want the light, if you want the joy and the peace and the blessings, you must have an eye that is straight. Straight on what? Straight on Christ, looking to Christ, focused on Christ, single, single-minded on Christ and the truth. Then you will have all those things you desire. And in that same passage, of course, the treasures. Where is your treasure? Who is your master? Because verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon would be money. Mammon would be possessions. Mammon would be the world and everything the world has to offer. You can serve the world or you can serve God. You can't serve both. And Christian, you have to serve one. You say, well, I got you, Pastor Russ. I choose neither. I choose to serve myself. Well, you're part of the world then. You chose the world if you chose yourself. What, I have to serve someone? Yes, you do. You can't serve no one. We are mortal beings. We will be doing something with this mortal life. And that something will either be for God or it will not be for God. And all the not for God is the world. All the things for God, of course, is God. So who is your master? Who are you serving? What is your choice? And this passage is talking about laying up treasures. Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be. You know, I preached Sunday morning that I believe the Bible is very clear at separating the mind, the soul, and the heart. The Bible mentions all three separately in the form of how we ought to love. So I believe there are three different parts of us, of the human condition. The mind is the will. The mind is the choices that we make, the, the decisions that we have, the, the logic, the reason, the thoughts. That is the mind. I believe the heart is the, the part of us that has compassion, the, the love, the kindness, the emotional side. Um, when you are hugged by someone who loves you, it is not your mind that feels like it's going to explode. It's your heart. It's the inner emotional being of you that just feels overwhelmed with joy. That is the heart So the mind is the logic, the reasoning, the thinking, the choices. The heart is the emotions and the feelings and the kindness and the compassion. And I believe the soul is the inner being, who we really are. The soul is the part of us that when when, uh, we are, are attacked, you could say that someone's mind is attacked, someone's heart is attacked. I believe that when you feel lost, when you feel discouraged, when you feel depressed, I think it is the soul that is feeling that. I believe the soul of, of the human is the actual person of the human. Because this body is just flesh. This body is not who you are. It's just the covering of who you are. Who you are is the soul. And when someone is traumatized, it is their soul that is traumatized. That's what I believe. When someone is, has feels deep hurt, I get the heart, feels emotion, good and bad. I get all that. But I believe that there is a deeper hurt than just the emotional, oh, man, that wasn't a nice thing to say. That was unkind. Like the deep, deep hurts are the soul. And I believe you can recognize the difference when someone's soul has been damaged and traumatized in their eyes, in how they look, how they act. I believe that the soul can affect the mind. I believe the soul can affect the heart. And I believe that our choices can bring us to a place 
where the soul finds success with God. And I believe our mind can make choices where our soul runs from God to a place of destruction. So you could also say our mind affects our soul because our mind makes choices that brings our soul to a place of success or destruction. But when we're in a place of destruction, if you've ever been there, self-destruction, where your soul is just in a very dark place, have you noticed how dark your mind gets when your soul is dwelling in darkness? You see, the soul affects very deeply the mind as it also affects the heart, the emotion, how we feel about something. Someone who's in a dark place, we would often use the word spiritually. You know, my wife mentioned the other day, she said, Russ, it's interesting, you know, the words we use at church, the world just doesn't get. Like, we'll say things that make sense to us, and the world's just like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. She mentioned, she watched a TV show. Amy was sitting in the back there. She says, I watched a TV show, and uh, this girl was, this is like a reality show, was dating a guy, and the family looked to this guy who's not a Christian, and they said, are you a godly man? And the man looks at the family and says, godly man? What does that mean, godly man? I mean, am I of God? Am I a God? What are you asking when you say, am I a godly man? And so they had to explain it to this guy. Now, I, I guess the TV show, this girl, Christian girl, didn't date. She, she rejected him eventually. Okay, so praise the Lord for that. Glory, hallelujah. She rejected the guy eventually. But here's the point. The world doesn't understand a lot of what we're saying as Christians. And I think that sometimes we as Christians, we make it harder to understand than it really needs to be. This idea of spiritual darkness, the world's like, I'm not a spiritual person. Okay, your soul's in a dark place. It's the same thing. It means the same thing. You can call it spiritual darkness. You can say your soul's in a dark place. You know, choose the phrase that works best for the audience you're preaching to and speaking to. But this idea of when someone's soul is in a dark, discouraging place, you can't tell me that their emotions are not affected by that. They are. You can't tell me their mind is not affected by that. It is. You know, a lot of people, they go to counseling. And the counselors are trying to help them with what? This and this. What they fail to assist them with is this, the soul. Why? Because a lot of counselors, especially unsaved counselors, don't understand how affected the mind and heart are by the soul, if these counselors even believe in the soul to begin with. You, are, you know there are some people who don't believe we have a soul, right? Well, we're just flesh and blood. We're just matter floating through space, and at some point we die, and not, you know, that's it, that's done, and someone else gets another chance after we're dead. I mean, they don't believe we have a soul. So how can someone who doesn't believe in a soul help you with your soul problems? They can't. So why are Christians going to people who don't believe in the soul, first of all? And if they do believe in the soul, they don't believe in the soul's existence on the level God's word states, an eternal soul. And if they did believe in an eternal soul, they don't believe in the God of the eternal soul. So many issues going on, uh, misconception of the soul of man, which is essentially the foundational problem of our human condition for the saved and the unsaved both. Why would Christians go to unsaved for help on this and this without getting help for this when it is this that is causing this problem and this problem? I don't know. I often warn Christians. I say, hey, you know, I'm not against medicine. I'm not against therapy. But they can only take you so far if they don't believe truth of God's word. Probably do more damage than good. 
Because these counselors, if you're, if you're paying attention, will do one of two things. They will say, well, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? They're not actually helping you. They're getting paid to ask, what do you think about that? And lots of money to essentially affirm what you thought about that. You are basically paying them to affirm to keep doing the same things you've always done. Why bother going? A lot of counselors, that's how they operate. The second way they're going to operate is to give you essentially a Band-Aid for this and this while not addressing this. But here's the problem. They give you the Band-Aid. They're going to give you, there are some good helps. You Connect with people. Be around people. Um, uh, have good memories. Think about the good things. Those are good things. Those are practical good steps. You know, count to 10 before you yell. By the way, that is a good thing. Yeah, some of you might need to do that. That's not a bad idea, okay? So these are good things. But the problem is then, uh, then they'll slip in other pieces of information like, well, you know what? I understand your parents don't agree with your lifestyle. They don't agree with your morality. Well, you know, your parents are wrong. You just keep doing what you're doing. So while giving you a Band-Aid for this and saying, well, make connections with friends, that's great advice. You should do that. They're actually making the deeper problem worse by telling you to keep going down that dark path, away from God, serving the wrong master. And as all Band-Aids do, they lose their stickiness eventually, fall off, and you got the same problem you always did if, they, if the Band-Aid even helped to begin with. Sometimes a Band-Aid is just a facade. Like the little child who says, oh, mommy, I'm hurt. Can I have a Band-Aid? Really? Are you bleeding? No, but I want a Band-Aid. You give them a Band-Aid, they walk away smiling. They believe the Band-Aid was like some kind of superpower. And so their belief of the Band-Aid actually brought joy to them rather than the Band-Aid itself. People walk away from counseling sessions thinking the statement is going to help me more than it actually will, but eventually it will wear off. And they still got the soul problem. And so that's what we're seeing here with this two masters idea that there are some who have given their soul to God, and there are some who have taken their soul and ran with it. And if you run with your soul away from God, your mind will be affected. Your heart will be affected. Verse 23, whole body full of darkness. Verse 25, therefore I say unto you, say, I say, uh, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Let's go down to verse 28. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30 talks about God uh, clothing the grass of the field. Verse 31 says, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or drink or be clothed? Verse 32, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're going to end with this text at the end of verse chapter 6 on anxiety. That's what this passage is talking about, anxiety. Anxiety is a difficult concept for people to understand that do not have it. If you don't struggle with anxiety, the best you can do is shut up and listen to those who, can, who do struggle until you understand it. It is a dangerous thing to pretend an understanding of something you obviously lack knowledge on. 
because those who suffer through it or do understand it will notice it right away, and you're not going to fool anyone. All you do is look stupid. This is a common thing for Christians. I think Christians who are in God's word want to believe that they know all truth because God's word is true. And I think in their head, they attach this idea that the more of God's word I know, the more of everything that I know. And that if I ever admit to not knowing something, essentially I'm admitting to not knowing God's word. (laughs) Well, that's pride getting in the way of you actually truly helping someone. Because just because you know God's word well doesn't mean you know everything about everyone well. There is a need to grow in wisdom, not just knowledge. Knowledge would be the knowing the word of God well. Wisdom would include the knowing people well. That takes an ability to pay attention, to listen, to watch, and to learn. There's a lot of pastors doing a lot of damage to a lot of people in this particular area, anxiety. A lot of teachers, a lot of mothers and fathers, a lot of Christians doing a lot of damage to those who struggle with anxiety. Because they don't struggle with it, they attach anxiety to sin. And they say, if you're anxious, you're in sin. Because the Bible says be anxious for nothing, to cast your cares upon Christ. And so if you fail to do that, you've disobeyed God's command and are therefore in sin. That would be the the step process they would get from here to here. And yet, this idea of casting your cares on God and not being anxious is not a command, thou shalt not be anxious. It's not that kind of command. It's an encouragement. God's saying, there's no need to be anxious. We can, we can get through this. I can be there with you. So when we recognize, first of all, that God's word is not giving a command but an encouragement, right away we can eliminate this idea that anxiety is sin. It is not. Secondly, we can understand that God is the answer to anxiety. Now, there are other, again, like the counseling, there are other practical steps towards anxiety. But ultimately, God, God is the best answer to anxiety. This, this, this feeling of fear, this feeling of, of stress for no reason. God has the answer to that because that anxiety is here, is here, and is here. And anyone who's affected by it knows exactly what I'm talking about. It is not just a mind thing. It affects how you feel, and it affects who you are, like ingrains inside of you. And so going back to what I said earlier, God is the answer to your soul problems, including anxiety. Now, there are different types of anxiety. There are those who are anxious because they went through trauma. And so now every time they are reminded of that trauma, they are around that person, they are around someone else who reminds them of that person, they are, they are told a story that reminds them of that person or that story, right away that anxiety shoots up again. And they are beginning to feel the same things that they felt originally, and it causes anxiety. That type of anxiety is very difficult to overcome. It can be overcome. Um, wise decisions on who you allow in your life. If, if you were abused when you were younger, you are causing more problems on multiple levels when you surround yourself with abusive people. So I'm not saying that you can never truly overcome abuse when you're younger. You can definitely function if you eliminate abusive people from your life. There's no need to be friends with abusive people, especially if you were abused. Now, me, 
praise the Lord, I was not abused. I'm not bragging. I'm just stating a fact. I was not abused in any way, physically or sexually. I'm so very grateful that God gave me what you might say an innocent childhood. I could be around an abuser, and it's not going to cause me any anxiety, any stress. And, you know, maybe God could use me to help that person come to a realization of who they are and where they're headed because it's not going to destroy me. You may not be able to do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. God will bring someone else. But if you've been affected by abuse, don't feel like you are called to abusers. I would say you're probably not, (laughs) unless you've come to a complete place of healing where the anxiety no longer affects you. Then maybe, you, you know, honestly, I would actually say, as a pastor, I would encourage you to minister to the abused You'd, be, you'd find much more, I think, joy and success if you've overcome abuse by helping the abused rather than the abusers. Let those who haven't gone through that, aren't stressed out by that, um, let God use them to help the abusers, right, if they even want help to begin with. All right. So there are those who struggle with anxiety because of an experience in life. That can be overcome through forgiveness, forgiving the abuser, forgiving um, whatever happened at that time. Uh, that can be overcome through repentance. Sometimes the stress in life was a bad choice we made. We chose a wrong path. It brought some very evil and dark things into our life, brought trauma into our life all by our own choices. Don't forgive yourself. You don't have the power to forgive yourself. Go to God and say, God, forgive me. God forgives you, gives you peace. You're, You're clean with God. Walk away. Walk away from the trauma you brought into your own life through your own bad choices. So repentance, forgiveness, there's other practical steps. I don't have time to get into it tonight. But there are things that can be done practically and spiritually to overcome the anxiety that essentially was brought into your life by someone else or you brought into your own life by your own bad choices. All right, but then there are those who are anxious, dare I say it, because that's how God created them. That's just who they are. You ever met someone who's just, like, happy all the time, just smiling, bubbly? Uh, that's, that's a great thing. Like, sometimes you like to razz those people, like, oh, yeah, you know, they're always laughing. Like, man, I almost envy that sometimes. Like, that's, that's a beautiful personality. <laughs> I, I'm not jealous of it necessarily. I said almost envy it. I definitely am not, like, would not rag that personality. I think that's great. If God designed you to just be, like, a happy personality, that's a beautiful thing. And then, of course, God designed some to be very serious. They're very serious personalities. Not that they're unhappy. They don't hate life. They're just very serious people. That's not a sin. It's how God made you. And then there's people who are very thoughtful, and there are people who are just action, 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 not thoughtful. Now, none of these personality traits are sin. All of them have their strengths. All of them have their weaknesses. If you have a personality that is strong in either direction, you are probably going to experience both the strengths and the weaknesses, and unfortunately, usually the weaknesses outweigh the strengths, and you end up suffering more than you benefit. The best-case scenario for any person is to not let their personality go extreme, but to be balanced by the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to find yourself benefiting from the strengths of your personality and not suffering from the weaknesses nearly as much. But that's only when your personality is controlled by Christ and doesn't control you. All right. 
But any of these personalities are prone to dangers and self-destruction, any of them. The happy-go-lucky one, you know, doesn't, it, it gets taken for a ride because they never really think through what they're doing and the people they're around, everything's great, and then they just get hurt over and over and over again. And then you find these people that are always happy-go-lucky turn into happy on the outside, depressed on the inside because they let their personality take over. They never really considered and, and asked, should I trust this person? They're just happy about everything like an innocent little child and they were just, again, taken for a ride. But then there are those whose personalities are anxious. you got the happy personality, the serious personality, the thoughtful personality, the anxious personality. Anxiety is not a sin. Having an anxious personality is not a sin. It has its strengths. Did you know that? And it has its weaknesses. The strengths of an anxious personality is that person probably will not do too many stupid things. That person's not going to drive 80 miles down the road drunk or otherwise. Someone with an anxious personality is a lot less likely to get in a car wreck, at least from their own problem. Someone with an anxious personality is probably a lot less likely to get in trouble with friends because they don't have as many friends, for one. And they're always going to be saying, should I do this? So there are some strengths to that personality. There's a whole lot of weaknesses that come with it. I'm not going to get into the weaknesses, but there are some, quite a bit. Now, when it comes to anxiety, whether it's ingrained in your personality or it's attached to an experience, there is an answer to it. Just like there's an answer to anger that might be ingrained in our personality. Just like there's an answer to, to uh, action without thinking part of our personality. There's an answer to our anxiety. You see, anxiety, again, is an unfounded fear. There's no logical, reasonable purpose for the feeling of flight and fright that you are feeling attached to meeting someone for the first time, attached to standing up and giving a prayer request, attached to going to your job for the first day. There's no, they're not waiting for you at the job to beat the snot out of you. Like, you know that, but your emotions make you feel like they're going to beat you up when you arrive. I mean, we're adults here. It's not middle school, right? But you still have that feeling first day at the job. It's anxiety. How would you like to feel like that every day about everything? How would you like to feel you're going to get beat up every time you go to Walmart? How would you like to feel you're going to get beat up when you go to your best friend's birthday party? Like, you know logically my best friend won't beat me up, but you feel like when I get out of the car, they're going to beat me up. When I go to Walmart, that old lady's going to hit me with her cane or something. Like, the, people with things, I'm not saying that specifically, but people with anxiety, that's what they feel like everywhere they go, everything they do. They don't have to live that way. And you can help them if you better understand what they're suffering through, because it is suffering. And understand that anxiety is attached to the soul. And who is the healer of the soul? Who is the comforter of the soul? Because therapists often want to deal with anxiety up here. But up here is only a symptom of what's going on here. And when a person with anxiety, born with it, or experience causing it, when their soul, when, when they are connected with the God who cares and loves, I will not tell you that their anxiety will go away. I will tell you this. It will become functional anxiety. Now, dysfunctional anxiety is when you don't go to the store because you're scared. Dysfunctional anxiety is when you turn away a job offer, which is perfect for you because you're scared. That's dysfunctional. Your anxiety is controlling your life. Functional anxiety is you go to that job, you do what has to be done. There is still feeling of fear, but it's not nearly as strong. It's kind of in the back of your head. 
but you can, you can work through it and it doesn't stop you. That's functional anxiety. There are people, again, with personalities where they may have to live with functional anxiety. It will never be eliminated from them because it's part of their personality, but their personality doesn't need to control them. And so God says, do not be anxious, and God is reminding those with anxiety. He's saying, I love you. I'm here for you. I have proven throughout thousands of years that I can take care of you. Now, let's get together. Let's connect. And once that anxious person connects with God, they will find themselves functioning successfully. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. And there it is. Because verse 34, take therefore no thought for the morrow. We're still talking about anxiety. So God gives us the key right there, verse 33. He says, when you're struggling with anxiety, And the fears of where you are, who you're around, don't think about them. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. Think on me, God says. Think on my love. Think on the plans that I have for you, and they are good plans. And all these things will be added to you. All what things? The care and the protection I talked about in the previous verses. God says when you struggle with anxiety, remember me. And I will remind you what I have in store for you. There is so much more to anxiety than just the last 15 minutes that I've dealt with. Uh, There's no way that I've even scratched the surface of anxiety. But hopefully for those that don't don't struggle with it, you have maybe a little bit of better understanding of how it looks and where at least to steer someone in the right direction. Ultimately, someone who struggles with anxiety needs to talk with someone who understands the struggle and can help them make those connections better. And if you want to be that person, I suggest you start reading some books on it. If you have children who struggle with anxiety, you definitely need to educate yourself. And you need to understand it is not a sin. There is an answer. His name is Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for tonight, the chance to be together and to discuss truth. I pray that the truth we heard tonight would be helpful to us and that we would be able to take this truth and pass it on to someone else. In Jesus' name.